Good morning. If you got your Bibles with me, be finding 1 Corinthians as we continue our exposition through the book of Corinthians. We have, let me do what I said, told you to do. Let me find my place here. We're going to turn the corner here in this letter. And when we turn the corner, it's not going to be any mistake that we, where we are. And uh, this is extremely important for you to understand this morning. You're going to understand it even clearer next week. I wouldn't miss next week if you could. If you can't be here, you need to stream it. There are times in the church's life when we need to say clearly that there is a problem. And Paul is doing this in Corinth. There's a problem in the church. And he's not covering it up. He's not soft-pedaling. He's going to deal with it. And he has soundly turned the corner today. And we're going to turn the corner with him. And so, what we're going to be getting in over the next quite a few weeks is what we would call church discipline. It is, what do we do when there's sin inside of the family of God? What do we do when there's immorality, when there's unfaithfulness, when there's envy, when there's idolatry? Do we simply ignore it? Do we run from it? Do we cover it? How do we respond to it? There's an issue that I'm going to literally stop our study. And sometimes a pastor has to do these things. Because I see a problem in our culture. And I see it and I'm going to address it. It is the problem of abuse. It is an issue we cannot ignore. And so next week, we're going to, as we enter in here to this look at church discipline, we're going to speak clearly and soundly and biblical on the subject of abuse. We're going to talk about categories for abuse and how the church should respond to abuse. I don't want you to miss it. It is important. As you go, if you want to help me pray over that sermon, and I wish you would. There's a growth group lesson for next week out there. Grab that. It's on John chapter 10. And then study Ephesians 5. We will look at both of those texts. Both in the message and in the growth group. So now we have our place. We're going to deal with things going on in our culture. Paul is dealing with things in his culture. That's affected the church. Just keep your seats today. It's quite an extensive text. and I'm just going to introduce... A section here, because listen, this is important this morning to get where Paul starts, where Paul starts. We've got to start. We start with our spiritual leaders. And so if you've got 1 Corinthians, just look with me at chapter 4. We're going to back up in just a minute. I just want you to see that to start with. Here's the core of the text. It's 1 Corinthians 4. Look at verse 1. I'm going to read through 1 to 5, and then we're going to pray. This is how one should regard us as servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Moreover, it is required of a steward that they be found faithful. But with me, it is a very small thing that I should be judged by you or by any human court. In fact, I do not even judge myself, for I am not aware of anything against myself, but I am not thereby acquitted. It is the Lord who judges me. Therefore, do not pronounce judgment before the time, before the Lord comes, who will bring to light the things now hidden in darkness and will disclose the purposes of the heart. Then each one will receive his commendation from God. Let's pray. 
So Lord, this is your word this morning. There is a lot here of which we can only scratch the surface. So help us to scratch in the right places you want us to see today. Give us true wisdom and not worldly wisdom. Give us not a spirit of fear, but a spirit of power, love, and self-control this morning as we hear your word and as we act on it by how we live. Lord, we will act on this word next week. Help us to act in a way that brings honor and glory to you. In Jesus' name, amen. So remember last week, because this, remember, this is a letter. This is not div- divided up into chapters. This is a letter written to a group of people, a church, a local church. And remember we talked about last week, the church was majoring on minors. They were dividing amongst themselves. They were creating little sub-communities within the church that said, well, we like this leader and we like that leader. And thereby, they were trying to elevate themselves by elevating their, these spiritual leaders. There, were, there was division in the church as a result. And remember, we, we ended last week with verse 17. Just look with me at verse 21 to 23. This is critical. He said, so let no one boast in men. Why was he saying that? Because they were boasting in their spiritual leaders and causing division. Listen to what he says. For all things are yours, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, or the world, or life, or death, or the present, or the future. All are yours, and you are Christ, and Christ is God's. Brothers and sisters, if we do not understand the truth of that text, we will have no context for church discipline. Church has become a country club or a club that we join because of our preferences. And if we don't like it, we simply go join another club. The problem is that's simply not the way God sees the church. It matters not how we seize it. It only matters how God sees it. And God says we belong to each other in the same way that Christ belongs to God and the church belongs to Christ. And if we are going to understand issues like abuse, we must understand who we belong to. So he's saying, don't know why you're fussing and why you're envious and why you're dividing. We're all one in Christ. This all belongs to us. Like Pastor Micah said, we're on the winning side here. Why are we dividing? It's important in Ephesians 5, you want to sort of prepare yourself a little bit for next week. I hope you'll read and study very slowly through Ephesians 5. Before Paul tells the wife to submit to the husband, in Ephesians 5 verse 21, he tells us all, That we should submit to one another. Why? Out of reference for Christ. Can be no proper relationship with anyone. Until there's proper submission with each other. We belong to each other. We are family. We're not an institution. We're not an orphanage. We're a family. Philippians 2.3 then says. About a family. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourself. And brothers and sisters, it begins with the spiritual leaders of the church and the spiritual leaders in your home. This is where it begins. There's nothing more visible 
and more clear and more important than to understand that our elders and our deacons within the local body are our spiritual leaders and these things should be critically seen in them. Why are qualifications for deacon and elders important? What should be in the center? What should be in the front? What should not? And why does it really matter? I hope you'll see some of those. We're going to vote on our deacons next week. God put this here by his own plan. What's the main idea today? Spiritual leaders and the congregation of believers must reject arrogance and humbly recognize that they are servants of Christ and stewards of the mystery of God. But I want us to begin where he begins. Look at our first point. You see, I put and the congregation in brackets. It's true. But I want us to first focus on our spiritual leaders. Spiritual leaders are servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. This is how he's dealing with division. It's how he's dealing with arrogance in the church. He starts with the spiritual leaders, and he starts in verse 1. Spiritual leaders are servants. This is how one should regard us, as servants of Christ and stewards. This is not a suggestion. He's not saying, you know, I recommend that you look at me and Apollos like servants. It's not what he's saying. He's saying, you are to look at us as servants because we are servants. It's who we are. This is an imperative. We, are, we serve. We do the bidding of Christ. That's what he's saying. This word is not, we looked at the last week, diakonos, the word table waiters, the word we get for are the office of deacons. It's not what that word is. There's another word for slave that's all in the Bible. It's called doulos. It's not the word either. It's a completely different word. You know what it means? It means under rower. He said, we are those guys in the bottom of the boat rowing the ship. That's the picture he paints. Generically, this word means he's a subordinate. In other words, I am subject to direction. From who? It's important. There's a lot of churches need to understand this this morning. They're servants of Christ. He's under rowing. Who's calling the shots? Row, row, row. Christ. You see it? I am servants of Christ. Servants who belong to Christ. We're subject to Him. And not only that, look at the continuing verse 1. I'm a st- we're stewards. You ever been on a cruise? Who's been on a cruise? The little guy that comes around, what do they call him? Steward. Why do they call him that? Taking care of things, isn't he? This is the, sort of the picture here. Remember, when you read the Bible, you're reading a, a, a letter in a particular context. It makes perfect sense to them. Doesn't always make sense to us sometimes because we're not living in their culture. And here's basically what he's saying I am a, a deputy of sorts, I am a slave who's been given oversight over other slaves. The master tells me what he wants to get done, and I am making sure that it happens. I am making sure that things happen the way they should be. That's my job. I'm a steward taking care of things. Simply a high-ranking 
servant entrusted with oversight. That's what he's saying. That's what that word means. I want you to see it used in Titus. The very qualifications for a pastor. Titus 1 verse 7 says this. An overseer, that's an elder, a pastor. For an overseer, as God's steward, same word, must be above reproach. He must not be arrogant or quick-tempered or drunkard, violent or greedy for gain. For an overseer, as God's steward, we are stewards of God. We are servants entrusted with oversight. Look what the steward's entrusted with. He's entrusted with the mysteries of God. He's not just entrusted with anything. He don't get to pick what he's been entrusted with. You see that? He's been given the mystery, and Paul has belabored this in chapter 2. That this is true wisdom. This is Jesus Christ crucified for our sins. This is what we want to understand today. Your very purpose and mine is to live a cross-centered life. He's writing this because they're not. They're dividing over things that's not important. Paul said, I've been given a responsibility by my master to make sure that you live a cross-centered life. So, spiritual leaders are servants. Spiritual leaders are stewards. And spiritual leaders must be faithful, verse 2. But I want you to see something here. I want you to grab a principle because we're going to... We're gonna Live in that principle next week. 1 Corinthians 1.9. You need to get this. Why must you be faithful to your spouse? Answer that question. Why? 1 Corinthians 1.9. Get this principle. Why must spiritual leaders be faithful? 1 Corinthians 1.9. God is what? Faithful. God is faithful. By whom you were called into the fellowship So now flip over to chapter 4, verse 2. Moreover, it is required for stewards that they be found what? Faithful. We are faithful because He is faithful. It is incumbent upon spiritual leaders that they understand who they are. They understand their responsibility that's been given to them and that they must be faithful. Servant must be trustworthy. This is the principle that the church lives by. We are who we are because God is who He is. It's that clear. We could deal with many things in our life and many decisions about what we should do and how we should treat each other if we just simply ask ourselves, who is God and who am I? I am to reflect Him. The spiritual leaders need to understand this Especially because of the next point. He's already dealt with this. He brings it up again. Spiritual leaders will be judged by God. This is a heavy. It's true. It's true whether you run from your calling or not. Jonah can run from his calling if he wants to. At the end of the day, he preached God in Nineveh. Amen? Better to, better to obey than get swallowed up and spit out and do it anyway. Spiritual leaders will be judged by God, like he says. But with me, it's a very small thing, verse 3, that I be judged by you or by any human court. Matter of fact, he goes on to say, I don't even judge myself. So we went to the pumpkin patch yesterday. Everybody else did too, I think. Found us a 
a little rocking chair and Laura was with us or her boyfriend sitting beside of me and we're both rocking and looking out there and you could almost see it. If you could see the pictures going up into social media, you could see them. They were like, everybody was taking pumpkins and putting them in front of their faces and all the couples were kissing behind them. And, you know, you could see, whoop, 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 whoop. They were all going up there. We were just laughing, saying, some of these people don't even like each other. You know, people put all those things and paint this picture online. They don't even like each other. They, they go home and say, okay, we're done with that. I'm going to go to my room. You go to yours. I'll see you tomorrow. That's the, that's the court of human opinion, you see. People live there. You could be miserable, but you put your wonderful, your best life now out there that doesn't even exist. Paul said, I don't judge myself that way. I don't, I don't judge my success of my ministry in the court of human opinion. Important. Romans 14.4 says this, Who are you to pass judgment? On the servant of another. Listen to what it, this, this grabs it. It is before his own master that he stands or falls. Paul says, I am a servant and a steward of God. Entrusted to help you live a cross-centered life. And I am to be faithful on my mission. Because I am accountable to one person. And it's not you. It's him. This is, brothers and sisters, is how we live, not in the fear of man, but in the fear of God. And how living in the fear of God makes us fearless, not frightful. Spiritual leaders must understand fear of God trumps the fear of man. Don't you hate it? You can't even use the word trump now and it comes up. It's nothing to do with him. 1 Corinthians 4, 4. He says, I'm not even aware of anything myself. But that doesn't mean I'm okay. Spiritual leaders simply don't even trust, don't even judge their own consciences. He said, my conscience is clean. It's clear. I'm not aware that I'm being an unfaithful minister of the gospel. But ultimately, my own conscience is not the judge. God is. Isn't that cool? So you're not the judge. I myself am not the judge. This will help you fight through your depressed moments of your life. God is. What He says about you is true. Notice in verse 5, the end of verse 5 says, And then each one, speaking still about spiritual leaders, will receive his commendation from God. What does the word commendation mean? Praise. That's a cool thought. We were giving praise to God this morning. Here's what he says. One day, we are going to receive our praise from God. What's it going to sound like? Remember the story? Well done, good and faithful servant. You see, but this is not just about spiritual leaders. That's the whole point. That's where he starts. It's not where he ends. So let's bring in now the congregation of believers. Spiritual leaders and the congregation of believers must reject arrogance because we are both servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. That's where he's going. That's how he's dealing with the arrogance and division within the church. So do you, un you see this? Why it ultimately supremely matters that your spiritual leaders see themselves as both servants of Christ and stewards of the mysteries of God. Why does that matter? Because this is how you should see yourself. That's why it matters. And historically, look at the Jewish people and look at the United States. We do not rise above our leadership. Our leadership 
reflects oftentimes who we are or who we want to be. You see, spiritual leaders are examples for the congregation of believers. We see this. This is where he gets in it. It's where he brings them into this picture. Look at verse 6. Verse 6 and 7 for me as a pastor is some of the most important and precious words. I have applied these things to myself and Apollos for your benefit, brothers, that you may learn not to go beyond what is written, that none of you may be puffed up in favor one against the other. Do you see it? He said, everything that I have taught you, I have first, he actually says we, me and Paulos have first applied to ourselves. I do not lay anything on you that's outside of God's Word and that I not first apply to me. Why? Because I am an example for you. And he's going to go on to say, and you are an example for the world. He says, don't go beyond what's written. What does that mean? Well, most of the time in the New Testament, when it says, talks about is, is written, he's speaking of Scripture. The Old Testament Scripture. Remember, literally, we're reading Scripture. This letter was literally being breathed out by God, inspired Scripture right there. So how were they doing that? How was this church going beyond Scripture? They were looking at their gifts. The gifts that God had given them. And they were being what the Bible, what his letter goes on six times to say, puffed up about it. Reminds me, what's the name of that fish? If you go down to the coast and you rub his belly, he blows up like it was a blowfish or puffer fish. It blows up. That's sort of the picture. It's like somebody scratches you just right. Don't know why, but for some reason we got a little pet pig. Right? I'm sure you've seen it on social media. Whoop, whoop, you know. You've seen on social media, but if you rub his little old belly, he'll just, he'll just let it all, he'll, he'll just roll over. That's why they, they look at their gifts, they're puffing up. What does that mean, puffed up? It means that you're taking something that's true about yourself and flaunting it over somebody else. Oh, if you've got a couple of kids, you've seen this happen. I dare you just try it. Just go somewhere normal, like go to Lowe's or the grocery store. And, and just take one child with you. If you've got two, just take one child with you. And just try to do something special. You know, get them a candy bar from that rack that they never get to pick from. And that candy bar might be gone when they get home, but that wrapper's not gone. That wrapper's in his pocket. Why? Because he's going to flaunt it over the other kid as soon as he gets home. He's going, he's going to say, look what daddy got me. Didn't get you that. This is the picture. Did they earn that candy bar? No. Did they, could, did they have any money? No. Children are two steps away from being homeless. They don't have anything. But they've flown it over the other ones as if it was theirs. As if it wasn't grace. This... 1 Corinthians 4, 7, brothers and sisters, is extremely helpful. Because here's what he says. For who sees anything different in you? You see? It's not just your spiritual leaders that are the examples. They are the examples for you because there's people watching you. Whether you like it or not. 
Somebody's watching you. And who sees what he's saying? When you puff up over the fact that you think what you have is actually something that you deserve, you look just like the culture. What do you have, Corinthians? What do you have, Stephen, that you did not receive? Your pastor practiced this this morning when it was raining. I just started raining. I was like, oh, it's raining. Hadn't seen that in a while. Go outside, sit on that bench. We didn't deserve that. When you are in, this is it's not in my notes, when you're in the, your darkest day, and listen, we all have darkest days, you are self-deceived if you say you don't have them. You are deceived. That's what the text says in chapter 3, by the way. Don't deceive yourself. When it feels like most of my life has been characterized lately by loss, by pain, by what, is, what God has taken away and not what He has given. It pays me to hit the pause button and say, Stephen, what do you have? Not what has He cost me or what has He taken away. What do you have? Think about it for a minute. Just stop getting busy and spend a minute to think about what you had and then ask yourself the question, what did I do to receive it? The answer is nothing. All that we have. Is grace. And we must be examples of that. Because people are watching. Therefore as servants. Stewards. We must reject pride. We must put on humility. Spiritual leaders and the congregation. Of believers must humbly recognize. That they are servants of Christ. And stewards of the mysteries of God. There are things. That we must reject. And there are things we must put on. I want to teach you something now. I'm going to go from preaching. That was preaching a little bit right there. I'm going to go to teaching. It's different. Preaching and teaching is different. God's told me to do both. I want to teach you something. You want to learn something this morning. You, probably not, you may have never used these words before in your life. I want you to, I want you to hang with me now. And I've just warned you to, to get, your, get the cobwebs out. Let's think. This is critical. You want to answer the question, do you want to live a cross-centered life? You better say yes if you're a believer. <laughs> you need to understand this this morning. There's a danger. The enemy of a cross-centered life is what is happening in this church, is what is happening in this culture. It's what we call an over-realized eschatology. Say that with me. Over-realized eschatology. What is eschatology? Somebody tell me. Study of end times. It's the future. What, we think about that. You think about what? The coming of Christ. That's, we should, you know, oh, we love to study that. If I said we were going to start Revelation, it would be twice as many people in here next week. Over, what does that mean? That they are in danger of having an over-realized eschatology. It's to live like now, like Christ has already returned. He hasn't returned yet. He's not. We're living in the time of the cross. He hasn't returned. In other words, you could say it this way. An over-realized eschatology wants the crown without the cross. This whole belief system's built up around this. This is the essence of the prosperity gospel. You can have it now without the cross. Pain and 
cancer and criticism is enemies that must be excised from our life. We want justification and we want to skip to glorification. When God says sanctification is in the middle of this, we have been declared righteous, we have been justified. Now in our actual lives, we are being made righteous through sanctification. And one day, when God raises our, our dead corpse out of the ground, He will breathe eternal life into that. We will be glorified with our soul, and so we will ever be with the Lord. The reality is, that is not right now. The over-realized per- eschatology person says, Oh yeah, Oh yeah, that's what it is. Oftentimes they spend their life either as a braggart, as arrogant, or miserable. He goes, so important is this, that he goes into this sarcastic, I love this section of scripture actually, it just goes to my, my own problem. I got problems. You know, be a pastor, we all got problems. You got problems, I got problems. I love, our family is all about sarcasm. You hang around our family a little bit, you will see, you, it'll just start dripping off. We're sarcastic. I love this. Inspired scripture. Paul gets sarcastic. Verse 8 Already you have all you want, already you have become rich. Without us, you've become kings. You hear it? And would that you did reign so that you might rule, we might share and rule with you. You see, this is what it means to have an over-realized eschatology rather than a deep understanding, a deep theology of the cross. They're dividing with each other. Think some have realized it and some have not. And since we've realized it and you hadn't, we are better than you. We hear this in some belief systems that say you can be a Christian and not filled with the Holy and dwell with the Holy Spirit. And then you have so two classes of Christians. It's just not true. He's already made that case. We are called. We are indwelled. We're all spiritual if we're saved. Paul's saying, you think you've arrived already, hadn't you? Oh, you've arrived all right. But not in any theological sense of a Godward mindset and a cross-centered life. You, you've arrived in a secular mindset. The only people who recognize and bear witness with what you are living right now is the world. They're acting like they're already reigning in a kingdom. But their behavior is anything but kingdom behavior. It's just what he's pointing out to them. Do you remember? It's not in your notes. 1 Corinthians 15.50. He's going to get into this. I just want you to hear it. I tell you of this, brothers... Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable put on imperishable. We have not inherited the imperishable yet. It's dangerous to live like right now. We're wearing the crown. It's not the way Jesus painted the life on the cross. It's not. Matthew 7 is clear. I don't know why many people don't read this when they present the gospel to people. But they don't. Matthew 7, 13 says this, Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide, and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter it are many. Verse 14, For the gate is narrow, and the way is what? It's hard. Hard. 
It leads to life. And those who find it, few. What's the point, Pastor? Spiritual leaders must expect to live a cross-centered life. They must. This is his point. He's, he's put all this sarcasm there for a reason, not just to be mean, but to get his point across. Look at verse 9. For I think that God has exhibited us as apostles as last of all, like men sentenced to death, because we have become a spectacle to the world, to angels, and to men. He goes on to say, this is, this is the contrast, brothers and sisters, between a cross-centered life and an over-realized eschatology life, you see. Listen to what he says. We are fools for Christ's sake, but you are wise, Christ. We are weak, but you are strong. You are held in honor, but we in disrepute. You see what he's doing? Here's what the apostles are saying. Look at our life. It's not just our message. We have put the cross on our life on visible display. We are treated the way we are treated because that's the way they treated my Jesus. That's what they're, he's saying. You're running from it. You think this is, this is something wrong when they treat us like that. That's the way they treat Jesus. And he's not returned yet. And until he does, they're going to treat us the same way they treated him. He is stark, he is pointed, he is sarcastic because he does not want Revelation 3. 14 to 22 to be said of the Corinthian church. Do you remember it? The angel of the church of Laodicea, right? I know your works. You are neither hot nor cold. Would you that you were either cold or hot? So because you are lukewarm and neither hot or cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. For you say, I am rich. I have prospered. I need nothing. Not realizing that you are wretched, pitiable, poor, blind and naked. Verse 18, I counsel you to buy from me gold refined by the fire so that you may be rich in white garments so that you may clothe yourself. And the shame of your nakedness may not be seen. He goes on to say, repent. You know, the reason God disciplines you and the way we must discipline each other is because we love each other. He's saying all that he's saying because he loves them. He's saying, I don't, I don't understand where you've got this from. Many think there's false teachers there. They're over these little groups. Look at 1 Corinthians 4, back now, verse 11 says, To this present hour, the apostle saying, listen, we right now, as I'm writing this letter, I'm hungry. I'm thirsty. We are poorly dressed, buffeted, and homeless. We labor working with our hands. When reviled, we bless. When persecuted, we endure. Why? Because the Son of Man had no place to lay His head. Because when He reviled, He did not revile in return. This is the cross-centered life. Look at what He said. When slandered, we entreat. Verse 13. We have become and still are, look at this word, like the scum of the world. How many of you like liver mush? Come on now. There's not enough of you raising your hands. Y'all need to repent. No, but if you have a frying pan and you cook liver mush and you cook a lot of it, you know that's 
the stuff that gets stuck around the edges, maybe cooking some eggs, you know, and you don't get all of it out. That's what he's talking about. That burnt, stuck stuff that you have to scrape off. If you're a Christian today, you should expect that's the way the world's going to treat you. That's what it looks like to live a cross-centered life. Paul states this very, yes, it's hard. But here's why he's doing it. Why has he said all this? Because spiritual leaders are spiritual fathers to God's children. That's why he's saying it. Parents, you're not called to be your children's friend. You're called to be their father, their mother, to warn them. So what I'm going to do next week when I talk about abuse, I'm going to warn us. We must warn each other. All right, I don't write these things. Look at verse 14 to shame you, but to admonish you as children. Here's what he says. There's no word for this. Verse 15. There's no word for this. You have, though you have many countless guides in Christ, you don't have many fathers. We don't have a word for these guides. It's like a personal attendant. So if, if you, would, you would hire this attendant, they would follow your children to school. They'd make sure they go to school, make sure they did their studies, make sure they didn't go fishing after they get out of school, make sure they did their work. You're just sitting there going, that sounds like a pretty good idea. If you ever see a picture of one of these, they usually have them with a picture with a stick in their hand. In other words, the students, <laughs> the kids didn't much like this person. They, they were considered to be a taskmaster. Here's what he says. Would you rather me come? Would you rather me be a spiritual father or a taskmaster? I'm treating you like my children. This is the way I'm talking to you. I'm, I'm talking to you this way because... The Lord has given me to help you not to waste your life living any other way than the cross-centered life. So important with this, he said, I'm going to do two things. I'm going to send Timothy to you, verse 17, and I'm coming myself. Many people think that Timothy actually is bringing the letter. So as he gives the letter to the church, they give them the letter and he also gives them Timothy. Why? Because Timothy has proven faithfulness. There's leaders here that are speaking down. We'll see that more. They're speaking down about Paul. And Paul said, I love verse 20 and 21. Actually, verse 19 says this basically. Talk is cheap. The church of Jesus Christ does not grow because of talk. It grows because of the power of God. And when I come, I'm going to seek whether the fact that these people are show, demonstrating the power of God are just or about themselves. You say, man, Paul had a lot to say there. He's just getting started. He's, he's not even, Paul's not even wound up yet. What, so what today? This is our question. This is my question. The pastor has to ask these questions before he preaches it. Am I a living picture of the Jesus that I claim to follow? Am I a living picture of the Jesus I claim to follow? Because everyone is watching us and we are servants and stewards to Christ. In other words, that question is simply asking the question we've been talking about the whole time. Am I living a cross-centered life? Matthew 10, verse 38 and verse 39. 
And whoever does not take his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And whoever finds his life will lose it. And whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. I went to a Christian school most of my life. And the first Christian school I went to, I went there from kindergarten to third grade. Here's what happened every single week. Every single week the teacher would get up and say, this is heaven, this is hell, you don't really want to go to hell, so put your faith in Jesus. Who wants to do it? How many of the kids do you think came to the front? All of them came to the front. How many times did they come to the front? Every week. Every week. How many times did I make a profession of faith from kindergarten to third grade because some teacher who didn't know the gospel got children to pray a prayer of something that they did not understand? Here's what the gospel says. Whoever does not take up his cross and follow me is not worthy of me. And until one understands that, we need to be careful. Will we lead them in a prayer, get them to write their name in the back of a Bible and call it done? There's a gospel. There's a Jesus to follow with this. And when you say, I'm with Jesus, you give Him everything. Lock, stock, and barrel. It all belongs to Him. None of it belongs to us. I do not call the shots in my life. He calls it. And what it costs me, it costs me. And it's for His glory. That's the gospel we put, that's the faith we put our Jesus in. We close our time together by focusing ourselves on the table. And I, I wanted to close with this and orient ourselves towards the table because I don't want you to think this. I wish I had something. Here, here I'll use this. I'll use this. This is not the cross this morning. This is not the cross. You with me? This is the cross. We carry it along with us as we go to put our Jesus on display. We're not sitting here saying this morning that we're supposed to be gloomy, mad, and miserable. 2 Corinthians 2.14 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of Him everywhere. That's how you live the cross-centered life. You spread it everywhere. And here's what he says, to some people it smells really good. Some people it stinks. But it's Jesus. It's who we follow. So now, brothers and sisters, we're about to pray and as we pray we're going to worship and we're going to come to the table. You're going to take both elements in your hand. You're going to go back to your seat. In just a minute, I'm going to lead us to take communion. But let us make sure of this this morning. What is of first importance? 1 Corinthians 15 comes to this. For I deliver to you as of first importance, what I also received. That Christ died for our sins. What are, what are we doing this morning at the table? If it is not to remember the death and the cost of our Lord.
You told us to do this. How long? Till he comes. Till we do it with him in glory. So that's what we are going to do. So as I pray, I'm going to prepare myself and I'm going to ask you to prepare yourself as I pray and as the praise team comes. So let's pray together.